Last week, Seahawks coach Pete Carroll spoke out against owners, blaming them as the ones that have led to the lack of black coaches being hired in the NFL. Of course, there's been plenty of critics that have come out of the woodwork. I'll be investigating this situation and much more on the latest installment of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked on Seahawks. Happy Thursday to all of our listeners, as always. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Going to be continuing our quarterbacks in transition series going back to 1997 legendary former Washington quarterback Warren Moon, as well as John Kitna as we look at the latest transition in Seahawks quarterbacking history. Plus, we'll be answering your mailbag questions as we do each and every week. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. At last week's annual owner meetings, Pete Carroll didn't offer anything new in regard to football-related items. He spoke more about Russell Wilson trading him to the Denver Broncos, Chris Carson's injury, his recovery from neck surgery, and talking about the secondary, why he's got high hopes for that group, as well as looking at some of the offensive line issues they're dealing with. A lot of the same topics he touched on with local reporters a couple weeks earlier when he and John Schneider met with the media to kick off a new league year. But behind the scenes, Pete Carroll was creating quite a stir. The annual general manager and coaches meeting ended up ranting for 10 minutes talking about the owners being culpable for the lack of black hirings in the NFL. This came on the heels of a new rule that was put in place that's requiring all 32 teams to hire either a female or minority offensive coach for the 2022 season. And Carroll's basically saying the owners need to look in the mirror. They need to be the ones that are willing to hire people that are different than them. Obviously, It was a behind-closed-doors meeting, no direct quotes from Pete Carroll, but they let him go on for 10 minutes. Owners reportedly not happy about this, not surprising, and there have been plenty of critics come out of the woodwork the last couple of days calling Carroll a hypocrite because he has never had a black offensive coordinator during his time with the Seahawks or even dating back to when he was coaching at USC. I have a major problem with this, though, with this viewpoint. Because Pete Carroll, yes, he's not perfect. Yes, you could make an argument that certainly there could have been some things done to look at that offensive coordinator position, for example, and hire a black offensive coordinator, a black quarterback coach. That is certainly something that he can look at as he's evaluating his coaching practice and say, you know what, there's room for me to grow. But this is not a man that made this statement, that talked to other coaches and GMs in Florida who has not walked the walk. This is not just a coach that talks the talk when it comes to hiring minorities and being involved in racial injustice. This is a coach that has been very active working with his players. And you just look back at his time at USC. He started a better LA. And through that organization, he spent a lot of time in really rough neighborhoods. And he'd go in in the late evening into these neighborhoods. You don't see very many people that look like Pete Carroll around these difficult parts of Los Angeles. And yet he did it because he was trying to save lives. He was trying to get 
young people to turn away from gangs. He was trying to provide a better life for them, better opportunities. He had a better Seattle as well that he founded that offered similar things. This is a coach that took part in the Equality March after the death of George Floyd a couple years ago. He was alongside several of his players for that march. He, on a Zoom call meeting during the middle of the pandemic, it was supposed to be about installing play calls and schemes, and the entire meeting was shifted towards letting his, his players speak their thoughts and turning it into a forum. What can we do to help with this situation? That's who Pete Carroll is. He genuinely cares about people. You can complain about Pete Carroll's game management, you know, things like managing clock, not going forward enough on fourth down, being too passive, being too conservative on offense, not being willing to throw the football on defense, being stubborn about some of his philosophies. If you want to complain about that, go for it. Shoot your shot. But in this instance, people that are criticizing Pete Carroll for speaking out, calling him a hypocrite. For one thing, I think you look at his hiring practices away from the offensive coordinator spot. He's had three black defensive coordinators. Most recently, he's promoted Clint Hurt to that position. And before that, he had Chris Richard and Ken Norton Jr. He had Robert Sala on his staff for a couple of years when he first came to Seattle. And then Sala followed Gus Bradley to Jacksonville, became the defensive coordinator with the 49ers. Now he's in his second year as the head coach for the New York Jets. And so Pete Carroll, you know, you look at his hiring practices, maybe not perfect, but he has certainly done a better job than some of the other head coaches in the National Football League. I, I think calling him a hypocrite is like shanking a field goal 20 yards to the left. I just don't see it in this case. You consider some of the candidates that when they hired Shane Waldron that they were linked to. From what I was told, Anthony Lynn was the front runner initially for that position to be the offensive coordinator, and then he opted to go to the Lions instead. Kirby Wilson, who had previously had ties with Pete Carroll, he was a coach that was in consideration, ultimately decided not to interview for that spot. And so it's not like the Seahawks have not considered black candidates for offensive coaching jobs. They've just ultimately ended up picking other candidates. Shane Waldron was Russell Wilson's choice last year. That was one of the big reasons that they hired him away from the Los Angeles Rams. So I think when you look at the big picture here, people that are criticizing Pete Carroll, they're doing what way too many people are doing right now. You need to stop looking at the messenger and you need to start paying attention to the message. And then today, Mike Malarkey, a podcast clip coming out with him admitting that he regretted that he got hired by the Titans in 2016 when he knew that the hiring process was a sham. They already were going to give him the job and they were interviewing minority candidates when they had absolutely no chance to get that position. So you've got the lawsuit from Brian Flores. Now you've got Malarkey's comments on that podcast. There have been other coaches that have jumped onto that lawsuit. I mean, this is just getting started. And I think Pete Carroll made a lot of valid points. I didn't get to hear everything that he said. I didn't hear anything he said in that meeting. But based on the reports that have come out and what we've seen from him in the past, he has always been active, especially the last couple of years. He admitted that he took it up another notch, getting involved with helping with these social issues. He, he canceled a practice a couple years ago so that his players could go get registered to vote. I mean, you name it, Pete Carroll has done countless things that have been in the interest of his players, not on the football field, but helping them to be able to have an impact, making a positive difference 
for everyone's lives and having an impact in trying to fix these these issues. And so I think anybody that's criticizing him, for one thing, you you clearly don't understand his history. You haven't seen the things that he's done off the field over the years. And two, you're just clearly overlooking the message. And what he was indicating there is exactly what the problem is. And the owners do need to look in the mirror. They need to be more willing to hire these coaches, hire black coaches than what they have been. That is really the root of the problem here. And so hopefully as things continue with this lawsuit from Brian Flores and, and more stuff comes out, I'm assuming that Mike Malarkey's revelation is going to be the first of many. I would not be surprised if this is a domino effect, but hopefully we're going to start seeing some progress here. The rule that was put in place, I think that it's a good rule. I think that every staff having that extra coach brought in on offense, I think it has good intentions. But I also agree with Pete Carroll that that is not really going to solve the issue. It starts at the top, and that would trickle down if you start to see some changes from the owners. And so I think the criticism of him is not warranted. I I think that it's extremely unfair. And, you know, you can call out the game management and all the other stuff related to football, and that's fine. I've called out Pete Carroll plenty of times in our podcast, but I, I think that this is just way off base if you are going after the messenger here when he clearly has the best interest for the situation in mind and he has walked the walk off the field in many regards. Shifting away from that little bit of a diatribe at the owner meeting is going to continue our quarterback in transition series coming up here in the second part of our show. Yesterday, Rob Rang and I looked at the dreadful early 90s when the Seahawks struggled to find a quarterback. We're going to get closer to the new millennium, 1997, Warren Moon coming back to town. going to be revisiting that quarterback transition here in a moment. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including this week's Master Championships, the start of the Major League Baseball season, odds, podcasts, and reviews for all the different leagues this season. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sporting and wagering informational needs, they've got live betting, esports, and updated scores. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. Bet online where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Thursday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And make sure to check out the Locked On NFL podcast. Five days a week available on audio form on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other major platforms. Also streaming five days a week on YouTube. We've got experts covering all 32 teams, providing insight and analysis as we continue through free agency and head towards this month's draft. So make sure to check it out. Locked on NFL podcast available on all major platforms. Continuing our multi-part series, looking at quarterback transitions in Seahawks history. The last couple of days, we looked at the first big one, which was Jim Zorn going to Dave Craig. That was a pretty successful transition, with Dave Craig being one of the better quarterbacks in franchise history, leading the Seahawks to four playoff appearances, one AFC championship game. The early 1990s, though, when Craig was jettisoned, The 1990s, though, when Dave Craig was jettisoned out of the Pacific Northwest, didn't fare quite as well for the franchise. First-round picks Dan McGuire and Rick Meyer turned out to be bust. McGuire had less than five passing touchdowns in his career. 
Meyer, after a promising first season with the Seahawks, regressed tremendously his last three years with the franchise, had 18 touchdowns and more than 30 interceptions his last two years with the team before getting traded away to the Chicago Bears. I guess that's the one silver lining. They did get a first-round pick somehow from the Chicago Bears for Meyer, and that ended up being one of the worst trades that the Bears have ever made. But with both McGuire and Meyer struggling mightily and unable to live up to their first-round draft billing, the Seahawks had to turn to quarterbacks like Kelly Stauffer, Stan Gelbaugh, John Freeze. It was just one of the worst imaginable quarterback situations. I made this argument a few days ago. I think that it was 1992 at least. That might have been the worst quarterback group in modern NFL history. Nine touchdowns and 23 interceptions between Stauffer, Gelbaugh, and McGuire. That group just was abysmal. And so the Seahawks found themselves in a really difficult spot. They had not had a good quarterback in five years And they had a high draft pick in 1997. Instead of going down that avenue again, though, and picking a quarterback early, they went to the opposite end of the spectrum and they signed Warren Moon, who at the time was heading towards his 41st birthday. He was far from his prime and he had been benched by the Vikings the season before in favor of Brad Johnson, did not have good numbers in limited action before being sent to the sideline. They ended up releasing him when he wouldn't take a pay cut as a backup So he became a free agent. The Seahawks brought him back to the Pacific Northwest. He started at the University of Washington, then was in the CFL for several years, finally got his chance in the league with the Houston Oilers, became a star, became a Hall of Fame quarterback in the process. Coming back to Seattle late in his career, though, I don't think anybody really knew what Warren Moon had left in him. He still had plenty of arm strength, but... You know, this is not Tom Brady that we're talking about here. In the mid-90s, quarterbacks playing into their 40s was really rare. And a lot of times, if they did, they were serving as backups. They weren't starting caliber quarterbacks. So Warren Moon was out to bust that trend. And that's what he ended up doing in 1997. Made the Pro Bowl 25 touchdown passes compared to 16 interceptions, almost 4,000 passing yards, played outstanding football. It was one of the better seasons that he had had in a couple years And for him to still do that at the age of 41, that was a big deal. The Seahawks finally had an offense that could put some points on the board. Unfortunately, the great defenses that they had had from the previous seasons, especially 1992 when they went 2-14, and that defense led by Cortez Kennedy was one of the better defenses in football. Their defense struggled, though. They were in the bottom third of the league for points allowed. And so they finished eight and eight, despite the addition of Warren Moon, finally having a decent quarterback. They weren't able to get to the postseason. Another year mired in mediocrity. They just couldn't put everything together. 1998, Moon comes back as the starter and doesn't have near as much success at the age of 42. By the middle of the season, he is benched in favor of John Kitna, former undrafted signee out of Central Washington. You don't see many Central Washington football players that end up in the NFL, but John Kitna staying in state, became the starter midway through the season, showed some promise during that time. So he entered 1999 as the starter and John Kitna ultimately was not good enough to be a long-term starter. He was a very good backup in the league for a long time, started a few playoff games. The Cincinnati Bengals, when they lost Carson Palmer to an ACL injury several years down the road, he stepped in and he kept the Bengals afloat, got them to the postseason, 
performed admirably in the playoffs. He just couldn't win the game, unfortunately. But John Kitna was a very good backup. He was one of the top-tier backups in the league for more than a decade. The Seahawks as a starter, though, he showed promise. That first year to start with Mike Holmgren in 1999 had a really good stat line. He had that year 23 touchdowns and 16 interceptions through for over 3,300 yards. And this was his first full season as a starter. So at that point, Mike Holmgren, he's got a team that won the AFC West. They almost advanced the second round of the playoffs. Unfortunately, the Dolphins proved to be just a little bit too much playing at the Kingdom. There was some promise there. And so maybe John Kitna can be our franchise quarterback, but he just never was able to get to that level. He was always good enough to be a spot starter, a very capable backup, but he never was good enough to be a long-term presence as a franchise quarterback. And he showed that the next year. The Seahawks regressed record-wise, fell back in the division, and Kitna ended up throwing more interceptions than touchdowns. And at that point, Mike Holmgren reached the conclusion that this team is not going to get where we want it to get as far as making the playoffs and making deep runs for a Super Bowl with John Kitna as the quarterback. And that was not you know, being offensive to him. Again, this is a guy that lasted in the NFL for a really long time because he could win you football games when he got thrown in as a spot starter. He was a very capable backup that could win games. He just wasn't good enough to be your guy as the quarterback. And so the Seahawks moved on. They traded for Matt Hasselbeck. They brought in Trent Dilfer as the veteran presence. And within a couple of years, Matt Hasselbeck was solidified as the starting quarterback. That transition, as I'll talk about in a later episode, didn't go very smoothly at the beginning. But nonetheless, the Seahawks had some stability at the quarterback position. They didn't have a superstar. Warren Moon was not in his prime, not even close, but he was still effective. He was the Pro Bowl MVP in 1997. Had a very good first season coming back to Seattle. That was easily the most stability they had had the quarterback position in a long time, even with him being a stopgap. And John Kitna was a promising young quarterback that was worth giving a look as a starter for a couple seasons. And there were some good things that he did. He just didn't take that step forward that he needed to, to really show the organization and give them the confidence that he could be the guy long-term. That just simply did not happen. But he was still a major, major improvement compared to the Stan Gelbaugh's and Kelly Stauffer's of the world. If John Kitna would have been the quarterback for the team in 92, 93, 94, those Seahawks teams with the defense that they had might have had a chance to get to the postseason because they had a ton of talent on the other side of the ball, and they had some good skill players on offense. They had some decent linemen on offense, but they didn't have a quarterback. And so that's one of the bigger what-ifs in Seahawks history you know, if they would have had anybody other than the quarterbacks that they ended up having there during that four or five year span, how much different Seahawks history might look. But you started to see signs the organization was finally turning the corner, the dreaded 90s starting to head towards better days ahead. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that you did have the coaching change, Mike Holmgren coming in, and you had some decent quarterback play with Warren Moon and John Kitna under center. That paved the way for all the success we saw in the early 2000s for the Seahawks. And ultimately, you saw that carry over even into the new regime with Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson, and company. A far cry from what they had to deal with in the early 90s with some of the worst quarterback play imaginable. Here in a moment, we're going to get to our weekly mailbag segment. Going to be answering as many of your questions as I can. 
You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Getting to our first question here in our mailbag. This one coming from Matt G tweets, what kind of year will Drew Locke need to demonstrate that the Seahawks don't need to rebuild at quarterback? That's a really good question because, you know, you got to wonder with him only being 25 years old, being a player that the Seahawks genuinely were interested in coming in, uh, coming into the 2019 draft out of Missouri, they did love this kid. I didn't think they were going to draft him, but I had heard from people that had ties to the organization that they really thought highly of Drew Locke. So I don't think they're blowing smoke completely with some of the comments they've made since they acquired him as part of the Russell Wilson trade. Now, can he be a franchise quarterback? That is the big question here. In my opinion, for him to be viewed as more than just a bridge quarterback, if he's really going to be a big part of their future under center, first thing, you got to have the production. I think at least 20, 25 passing touchdowns from him. And he's got to cut down on the interceptions. Two years ago, his last full season as a starter, he led the NFL with 15 picks that year. Pete Carroll was not going to put up with a quarterback turning the football over a lot. We saw that even with Russell Wilson in 2020 and how things ended up being a little bit more conservative after he had a couple really rough games where the let Russ cook movement turned into a bunch of turnovers, which is just uncharacteristic of Russell Wilson anyway. But Pete Carroll, it doesn't matter who's under center, he wants to control the football. He doesn't want to turn it over. So Drew Locke's going to have to make considerable strides in that regard. But I think maybe the most important thing above all else, do you see continued growth from him, consistent improvement as the season progresses? And does he have Shane Waldron in his corner. If he gets the blessing of Waldron, who thinks he's a good fit in this offense, and he's showing improvements as the year unfolds, he is only 25. This guy is still a very young player. If he is showing that kind of promise in this offensive scheme and he's continuing to get better, Shane Waldron and Pete Carroll might reach the conclusion hey, you know, we might have something here. That's a lot of ifs there, and obviously he's got to get the starting job first. The Seahawks could easily still bring in somebody like a Baker Mayfield that would make things interesting. Geno Smith could come back. They could draft a quarterback later this month in the first or second round. There are a lot of possibilities at that position still, but they're going to give Drew Locke a chance to win that job, and if he does win it, if he wants to be the starter beyond 2022, they will be giving him an opportunity to snatch that job if he's able to throw touchdowns and limit his interceptions, have a high completion rate, make smart decisions, have some impact running the football, dual threat capabilities, and shows you know that gradual improvement as the year goes on and he gets more comfortable in the system, gets the backing of the coaching staff, then maybe we could see Drew Locke still be a franchise quarterback. I'm not going to sit here and completely rule out the possibility. I think they could. I, or I, I think that Drew Locke could absolutely be a franchise quarterback if every domino falls in line the way it needs to. What are the chances of that happening? Probably not great because there's so many different things that need to occur for him to end up being the guy, but I would not rule it out either. T tweets, AP coming back as a coach. I would doubt that Adrian Peterson is going to be on the Seahawks staff this next season. I don't see that happening. In fact, I think that he still wants to play if possible. I don't know if anybody's going to be giving a 
36, soon to be 37 year old running back any opportunities. But I mean, Frank Gore played at that age a few years ago in a reserve role. Maybe a team will at least give Peterson a chance to come into camp and and battle for a roster spot. He could always get some opportunities in the middle of the season when injuries crop up. I think he's going to be keeping himself in shape. I don't know if it means he's going to get an opportunity. Last year he had to wait late to get the Titans to sign in. The Seahawks brought him in. They got banged up, didn't play the rest of the year. So I don't know if he's going to get that opportunity, but I don't see him coaching this season. Now, once he finally hangs up his cleats and realizes his career's done, then I could certainly see AP going into the coaching ranks and the Seahawks were impressed with his leadership skills. Maybe that would be a landing spot for him to come back to Seattle and be on their staff, be under coach Pete Carroll. Who knows? I just don't see that happening though here in the, in, in the immediate future. I just don't see it. Phil Holman tweets, Sauce Gardner or Derek Stingley, who has more upside and should Seattle even be worried about drafting a quarterback? So two different questions here. If they like a QB, I've been saying this for weeks, if they have a guy that they really like, I don't think that it would be a bad move to draft him. You don't want to reach for any position, let alone a quarterback. So at number nine, it better be a guy that you are feeling really confident in, that you absolutely love to pull the trigger. Now, the second round, things change a little bit. If you have a guy like Desmond Ritter or even Sam Howell that you like that is there at 40 or 41, that guy could still be a franchise quarterback and you're not using a first rounder on him. Even with Drew Locke's presence, as I mentioned, they want as much competition as possible. I don't know necessarily that the organization is sold on him as a long-term option at the position. They might even just look at him right now as, hey, he's good enough that if we have to move forward with him, we're okay. But they're still looking for upgrades. Maybe that would mean Baker Mayfield could come in or Gardner Minshew or some other player. They could come in and compete against him. Colin Kaepernick, we can keep throwing names out there. But I absolutely think that the Seahawks are going to be open to drafting a quarterback. I just don't know that there's a guy that they love enough that they would pull the trigger in the first round. And who knows which guys are going to be there when they have their two second round picks as well. As far as Sauce Gardner versus Derek Stingley, that's a tough one because I, I really like both these players. I think in terms of athletic upside, Stingley gets the nod. If you saw what he did at LSU's Pro Day, put up some ridiculous testing numbers. And you've seen that athleticism, particularly his freshman year when he had a dominant year, six picks that season. He's got ball skills, really great athlete. But at the same time, we haven't really gotten a chance to see what he can do the last couple of years. He's had injuries and there was COVID and all these different circumstances. Sauce Gardner's been good for the last couple of years, has never given up a touchdown at the college level in coverage. And he's just such a great fit for what the Seahawks love to do with his physical press coverage, his size, his length, his football IQ. I think both these guys are going to be really good players as far as trying to pick who's the favorite between them. It's two different style corners that are both very good at what they do. I wouldn't be surprised if they both end up being Pro Bowl, All-Pro caliber players. I just think they're going to do things a little bit differently. So a lot of it is going to go down to schematic preferences above everything else. Jeff tweets, out of the Eagles and Saints, which team do you think the Seahawks would have the best chance to make a trade with and land both of their first round picks in a trade down? So I actually did this on my latest mock draft that I released on all Seahawks a couple days ago. And I had the Seahawks trading down from nine to get both of the first round picks that the Saints have with the Saints and Eagles actually just making that trade Monday. So the Saints now have two first rounders this year, 16 and 19. 
I had him swapping third round picks. So Seattle dropped back to 98. The Saints got pick number 72. That was really the, the one thing that worked in the Saints' favor here. If they have a quarterback they really like or a tackle they really like and they want to trade up, part of the reason I think they got a second first-round pick is to give them that ammunition so that they can do that if they want to climb back into the top 10. So the Panthers or the Seahawks, teams like that that are in the back end of the top 10, they could be candidates to trade down in the Saints could potentially say, you know what, we are going to package both these first round picks we've got because we got a QB that we believe in, or we got a tackle that we think can replace Tron Armstead. We're going to give you those two first round picks and go get that stud player in the top 10. So I think the Saints would be the team of those two that would probably be the higher likelihood the Seahawks could have a trade down and get both those first rounders. I can't see the Eagles doing that, although there were reports today about them really looking closely at Malik Willis. If Malik Willis is still there when the Seahawks are on the clock nine and they don't want to pick Willis themselves, the jury remains out whether that be the case or not, but they might be able to facilitate a trade with the Eagles who have two first-round picks can move up to go get that quarterback. Reports that I've read, though, have indicated that Jalen Hurts, they're still planning on him being the guy. 2023, they might be reevaluating their quarterback position. So I think the Saints of those two is, is more likely. Marshall tweets, I've seen a lot of mocks of the Seahawks picking a linebacker early. Why? We have Jordan Brooks and Cody Barton. So, yeah, Jordan Brooks is a great player. 184 tackles last year, got an all-pro vote. I think he's just scratching the surface of his potential. He's going to be ready to take the torch from Bobby Wagner and be the guy in the middle. But has Cody Barton done enough to show that he is a full-time starter? No, he hasn't done that. Does that mean he can't be? No. He had some good games to close out last season, but he has never started more than a couple games in a row. We haven't got a chance to really evaluate him playing much on defense, particularly as an off-ball linebacker. He very well could be the guy, but you have some really good linebackers in this class. I actually had Devin Lloyd as my first selection in my latest mock draft, and, and some readers were wondering, why would you pick a linebacker that early? But you look at what teams like the Rams and the 49ers like to do, particularly the Rams, those intermediate crossing routes that they have been able to torch the Seahawks with the last couple of years. If you could have another linebacker that can cover really well, Devin Lloyd has outstanding coverage skills. He's as good of a cover off-ball linebacker as I've seen in a long time. And he had a couple interceptions. He returned for touchdowns at Utah. He's got 43 tackles for a loss the last three years, so he can certainly defend the run. He can blitz extremely well, both as an off-ball linebacker and off the edge. I mean, he just gives you so much flexibility. If you're picking best player available and you've got that big gaping hole with Bobby Wagner gone, Devin Lloyd could make some sense. You get some players like Channing Tindall on day two that could make some sense for the Seahawks as well. I would actually not be surprised at all if one of those first three picks is used on a linebacker because you do have to replace Bobby Wagner if they're not sold on Cody Barton and they've got a new scheme they're going to be doing defensively, then they could choose to go that route. So I don't think that it's a misguided evaluation that linebacker is a bigger area of need maybe than what some fans realize. I could see them drafting one early, absolutely. Jenny tweets, should OTAs be mandatory this season due to new coaches, players, and schemes? By rule, they can't be mandatory. But that's, you know, in theory, you could make it mandatory without saying it's mandatory. I don't think Pete Carroll is going to treat it that way. They do have some new coaches, so certainly on defense it's going to matter. I think after last year, them not having veterans there for a good chunk of OTAs, going 7-10, and 10, 
new personnel, particularly in offense. I think that OTAs are going to be emphasized more. I expect a lot more participation from players. I think more veterans will be there this year. And I think Pete Carroll's hinted at that with some of the comments that he's made this offseason that they realize, you know, we had a chance to assess the way things went last year. Maybe they go back to a more traditional OTA where there's more players there and they can get more work done on the field. We'll just have to wait and see. Once we get to May, we'll have a better idea how that's going to play out. But I expect that you're going to see more veteran participation for the Seahawks than we saw this time last year. 509 King tweets, what are the odds Seattle extends DK before the season and will it be for longer than three years? Typically, the Seahawks prefer four-year extensions. With a young player like Metcalf, that is exactly where I would expect it to be. I think it would be a four-year deal that's got some backload to it because that's how the Seahawks like to do their contracts. I wouldn't expect any changes from how they've done things in the past. And I would think that that deal gets signed before the start of training camp. That's usually the window to get players extended. I know with the trade rumors that are out there, fans are like, can we please get this done now? And maybe they will break trends because this is such a key player on offense. We have seen players like Russell Wilson get extensions in April before. Maybe they will be working against the clock to do that. But if they're going by past precedent, it'll be late in the offseason going into training camp, and they'll get that deal done. But i say it's an 85% chance that he's going to get extended. I would, I'd be surprised, maybe not stunned at this point, but I'd be surprised if they moved him. And I think they view him as a building block for their future going into this next era of Seahawks football. And the last question here from BK tweets, what would you consider a successful season for Rashad Penny? Well, first and foremost, staying healthy. I think if he can play in 14 or 15 out of 17 games, then that's a big deal for the Seahawks. If they can just keep him healthy, keep him available. And then I would say probably, you know, maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic here, but based on what we saw at the end of last year, I think 1,300 yards and 12 to 14 touchdowns on the ground, if he's healthy, those are realistic numbers that he could push for. Now, Chris Carson being back, if he's healthy, that's going to cut into his workload some. But Rashad Penny is going to be the starter as long as he's healthy. With the money they just gave him, what he did the end of last season, he's going to get the bulk of those carries and those opportunities at the backfield. He's going to be the workhorse. So I think 1,300 yards, maybe I'm being a little bit, you know, uh, you know, a little bit too optimistic about what he's going to be able to accomplish but we saw those last six games how explosive he is you can bottle it up in 14 15 plus games this guy is a 1300 plus yard rusher with double digit touchdowns so really excited to see what he can do for an encore after how he finished last season with hopes that he can stay healthy as always with running backs in general and his history keeping him on the field is going to be the biggest key you can keep him healthy, keep him available. He's got a chance to put up some really big numbers this season. As always, thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and we're streaming live on YouTube five days a week. Coming up on our Blue Friday episode, I'll be rejoined by my co-host, Nick Lee. The two of us will be playing a spirited game of deal or no deal, looking at some remaining free agents that are out there on the market. Plus, we'll be investigating several center prospects for the 2022 NFL Draft. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.